We have a problem. That's what we're going to talk about. I'm just key theme of this morning. We have a problem. Ron, good to see you. Glad to see that you have fewer problems than you had when I saw you in the hospital a few days ago. Good to have you back with us. So we have a problem. I think Paul has established that well. We're in Romans chapter 3, starting the second half of verse 22. But just to bring us up to speed from where we've been throughout, as you recall, Paul, after he gets done with his introductory matters, identifies himself, lays out some of the themes of this letter, says polite things to the people he's going to be visiting about how he's going to visit them and why and so forth. And, of course, that's not just, as we said, not just Paul giving a polite travel plans update. He's talking about his mission, what got him up in the morning. But in chapter 1, starting in verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. All of chapter 1 establishes that there is wickedness, that all are guilty of it, that the wrath of God is being revealed against it. And of course, when he's talking about that in chapter 1, at least on its face, at least at the way he's rolling it out at this point in his argument, he's talking about whom? Not Jesus. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. Yeah, at this point he's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews. Right? As we discussed in chapter 1, he is talking about those wicked, naughty, evil Gentiles in a way that all of his fellow Jews, as, he, as they're listening to him, are going to be cheering him on. They're going to be saying, yeah, yeah, you, you tell them, Paul. They're nasty. They do wicked, evil things. But then the problem we see in chapter 2 is that it's not just Gentiles that have a problem, is it? Right? First verse of chapter 2 says, You, therefore, you've got no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Right? Remember, Paul is writing to a community in Rome of people who are following Jesus. Some are Gentiles, some are Jews. All are following Jesus. And you, you get the kind of ethnic tensions that come apart. You get the religious tensions. There's sociological conflicts that somebody could try to map out and people have. But Paul is making it very clear to his fellow Jews in Rome that just because you're a Jew following Jesus doesn't mean that somehow you're off the hook. In fact, it's vitally important that you recognize you're just on the hook exactly as much as any Gentile is. Plenty of good things about being Jewish, Paul says. Plenty of advantages, right? We have the patriarchs. We've been entrusted with the very words of God, but that is not going to be sufficient to get you out of the deep yogurt that you're in because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is not news, by the way, right? But that, that Paul would 
tell his, his Jewish hearers about this would not be like something that would surprise them. It might not be something they'd necessarily want to think about so much. But the fact that Jews sin too is not surprising. If we remember back in Leviticus chapter 16, Paul deals, or God deals decisively with this very reality, doesn't he? In Leviticus 16, and I know you all have your, your Bibles well thumbed back in Leviticus. Those pages will just come right apart. Leviticus 16, this is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? This is when two goats are selected and, and the lucky goat gets sent off into the wilderness, although some think maybe he wasn't so lucky, somebody would make sure that he got like pushed off a cliff or something so that goat wouldn't come back because the idea is that the sins of the people were put on the head of that goat and he's supposed to go away, Right? But then there's the goat that's sacrificed. There's a bull that is sacrificed for the high priest and his family's sins. And these sacrifices are done in a specially prescribed manner. They're only done once a year. The high priest makes these sacrifices and he takes the blood from these sacrificial offerings and he sprinkles it where? On the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is also known as what? The Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, you may have seen the movie. The cover of the Ark is known as the Mercy Seat. This is where this blood was sprinkled. Once a year only. That's the only time anybody could ever go into that Holy of Holies where the Ark was placed. And this blood was was sprinkled there as part of the ceremony of atoning for the sins of the people. And... As Judaism developed, of course, as we know, not long after Paul writes this letter, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. There is no mercy seat anymore on which you can sprinkle any blood. One of the things that developed was this liturgy among uh, the Jewish people that uh, is known as the al And on Yom Kippur, this is what is recited. And the idea is, and because I'm going to screw the mic up, I won't actually do it, but every time you say the name of a sin with your right fist, you, you bang your chest on the left-hand side. It begins, Our God and God of our fathers, let our prayer come before you and do not hide, you, hide yourself from our plea. For we are not so arrogant or obstinate as to say before you, Lord, our God and God of our fathers, we are righteous and have not sinned. For in truth, we and our fathers have sinned. Right? This is, this is just the preamble. They're just getting warmed up at this point. We have sinned. We have acted treacherously. We have robbed. We have spoken slander. We have acted perversely. We have acted wickedly. We have acted presumptuously. We have been violent. We have framed lies. We've given bad advice. We have deceived. We have scorned. We have rebelled. We have provoked. We have turned away. We have committed iniquity. We have transgressed. We have persecuted. We have been obstinate. We have acted wickedly. We have corrupted. We have acted abominably. We have strayed. We have led others astray. We have turned away from your commandments and good laws to no avail, for you are just in all that's befallen us. You have acted faithfully while we have done wickedly. What can we say before you, you who dwell on high? What can we declare before you, 
you who abide in heaven, do you not know all the hidden and revealed alike? They're still warming up here, by the way. You know the mysteries of the universe and the hidden secrets of all that lives. You search the inmost being. You test the heart and the mind. Nothing is hidden from you, nor is anything concealed from your eyes. Therefore, may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, to grant atonement for all our sins, forgive all our iniquities, and pardon our all our transgressions. And here the al-chait proper begins. For the sin we have sinned before you under duress or free will, and for the sin we have sinned before you in hardness of heart. For the sin we have sinned before you unwittingly, and for the sin we have sinned before you by an utterance of our lips. For the sin we have sinned before you by unchastity, and for the sin we have sinned before you openly or secretly. For the sin we've sinned before you knowingly and deceitfully, and for the sin we've sinned before you in speech. For the sin we have sinned before you by wronging a neighbor, and for the sin we have sinned before you by thoughts of the heart. For the sin we have sinned before you in a gathering for immorality, and for the sin we have sinned before you by insincere confession. For the sin we've sinned before you by contempt for parents and teachers. And for the sin we've sinned before you willfully or in error. For the sin we have sinned before you by force. And for the sin we have sinned before you by desecrating your name. For the sin we have sinned before you by impure lips. And for the sin we have sinned before you by foolish speech. For the sin we have sinned before you by the evil inclination. And for the sin we have sinned before you knowingly or unwittingly. For all these, God of forgiveness, forgive us. Pardon us, grant us atonement. Resuming, for the sin we have sinned before you by deceit and lies, and for the sin we've sinned before you by bribery, for the sin we've sinned before you by scorn, and for the sin we've sinned before you by evil speech, for the sin we've sinned before you in business, and for the sin we have sinned before you with food and drink, for the sin we've sinned before you by interest and extortion, and for the sin we've sinned before you by being haughty. For the sin we have sinned before you by the idle chatter of our lips, and for the sin we have sinned before you by prying eyes. For the sin we have sinned before you by arrogance, and for the sin we have sinned before you by insolence. For all these, God of forgiveness, forgive us, pardon us, grant us atonement. Not done yet. For the sin we've sinned before you by casting off the yoke, and for the sin we've sinned before you by perverting judgment. For the sin we've sinned before you by entrapping a neighbor, and for the sin we've sinned before you by envy. For the sin we've sinned before you by lack of seriousness, and for the sin we have sinned before you by obstinacy. For the sin we have sinned before you by running to do evil, and for the sin we have sinned before you by gossip. For the sins we have sinned before you by vain oath, and for the sin we have sinned before you by baseless hatred, for the sin we've sinned before you, by breach of trust, and for the sin we've sinned before you, by confusion of heart. For all these, God of forgiveness, forgive us, pardon us, grant us atonement. And for the sins for which we're liable to bring a burnt offering, and for the sins for which we're liable to bring a sin offering, and for the sins for which we are liable to bring an offering according to our means, and for the sins for which we are liable to bring a guilt offering for certain or possible sin, and for the sins for which we are liable to lashes for rebellion, and for the sins for which we are liable to forty lashes, and for the sins for which we are liable to death by the hands of heaven, and for the sins for which we are liable to be cut off and childless, and for the sins for which we are liable to the four death penalties inflicted by the court, 
stoning, burning, beheading, and strangling for positive and negative commandments, whether they can be remedied by an act or not, for sins known to us and for those that are unknown, for those that are known because we have already declared them before you and confessed them to you, and for those that are unknown before you, they are revealed and known. As it is said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed are for us and for our children forever, that we may fulfill all the words of this Torah. For you are he who forgives Israel and pardons the tribes of Jeshurun in every generation. And beside you, we have no king who pardons and forgives, only you. My God, before I was formed, I was unworthy. And now that I have been formed, it is as if I had not been formed. I'm dust while alive. How much more so when I'm dead? See, I am before you like a vessel filled with shame and disgrace. May it be your will, Lord my God and God of my fathers, that I may sin no more and as for the sins I have committed before you. Erase them in your great compassion, but not by suffering or severe illness. That Jews have a problem is not news. We all have a problem, don't we? Gentiles, Jews, we all have a problem. Paul says in chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. No one is free. There is no difference, Paul says in verse 22. No difference between Jew and Gentile. All sinned. And therefore, everybody falls short of the glory of God. We all have a problem. And it's the same problem. Everybody sinned. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. Now, what this means, by the way, is that to the Jewish mind, that means God has a problem. Let me explain. See, God is supposed to rescue his people, right? God's supposed to deliver his people from all enemies. Promised he'd do that. In fact, God, as we're going to be talking about a lot over the next couple months, God made a specific covenantal promise a few of them, in fact, to a specific people, saying that they were going to be his people. He was going to be taking care of them. He was going to, in fact, be using them as his agents. But at the time Paul is writing this, God's people are not at a point of any great power or strength. They're, in fact, under foreign oppression, as they had been for centuries, almost uninterrupted. They are tolerated by the Roman Empire. They're put up with, mostly because at that point, the Romans felt that it was easier to tolerate them than simply to kill them. Later on, Rome had a different feeling about them, at least when it came to Jerusalem. In fact, the community Paul is writing to in Rome, again, the, the history of this is is uh, controverted. There's plenty of folks who argue either way, but the people who are in Rome may well have already been victims of Jewish 
purge, or the Jews being forced out of Rome for a time. So the Jewish people rightly can say, now hang on a second. I mean, God made all these promises to us. Supposed to be placing us in, in the land and giving us security and giving us prosperity. Now, what's going on? You get this sense of complaint all through the Psalms. Psalm 143 may, in fact, shed some light on this. Psalm 143, O Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy, and your faithfulness and righteousness come to my relief. Don't bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. If that sounds familiar, it should, because this is one of the things that Paul just quoted a few verses back in chapter 3, as he's establishing the fact that everybody has a problem. No one righteous, no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me, he crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me, my heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works. I consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. This is somebody who is in trouble. This is somebody who needs God to deliver him. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Show me the way that I need to go. For to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, Silence my enemies, destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. In those last couple verses, we hear the grounds of the servant's plea to God. Not just that the servant himself is in a bad spot and would like to be gotten out of it. That would be reasonable enough. But he's saying, no, for your name's sake, Lord, and Lord, there is Yahweh, your name, that's the, the name, Hashem, the name of God. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, preserve my life. Why would the psalmist bring that up? Why would he bring up God's name? It's not a rhetorical question. Why would he bring it? Don't say Jesus. Why would he bring up God's name? His reputation. For your reputation, God, your reputation is on the line here. I mean, you promised you were going to deliver your people. Okay, I'm one of your people. need to be delivered. Come on. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. What grounds does the psalmist have to bring up God's righteousness or justice or justness? Because he promised. God, you promised you're going to take care of your people, right? Well, I'm one of your people. 
What are we waiting for? In your unfailing love, silence my enemies, destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. Why do you bring up God's love? Yeah, that's who God is. This is, you know, you're, you're supposed to be all gracious and loving and stuff. This would be a good time for you to demonstrate that. Be good for your reputation. This would be a fulfillment of what you said you were going to do. This is who you are after all, God. And it may well be that this psalm was in the back of Paul's mind and the minds of his hearers as he's writing this. Because he says, no difference between Jew and Gentile. Everybody sins, so everybody falls short of the glory of God. And they're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a helisterion. That's the Greek word that was used to translate that offering that was being made, the blood sprinkle on the mercy seat, as a sacrifice of atonement by the shedding of his blood through faith or faithfulness. And God did this. Why? Don't miss this. Not just because he loves us, not just because we're you know, in need of redemption. He did this to demonstrate his own righteousness. He did this to demonstrate his own justice. The psalmist says, in your righteousness, deliver me. God says, yep, that's exactly what I'm doing. He did this to demonstrate his justice. You know, it's forbearance. He had left those sins committed beforehand unpunished. But he did it to demonstrate his justice right here and now at the present time so as to be what? Both just and the one who justifies those who have either faith in Jesus or the faithfulness of Jesus. So as to be himself righteous and the one who makes righteous those with faith in Jesus. In other words, what's news is not that Gentiles have a problem. Everybody agrees on that. What's news is not that Jews have a problem because that's pretty well established. No. The news here is what God is doing to demonstrate his justice, his righteousness. The news here is what God is doing to manifest his loving character. The news here is what God is doing for the sake of his reputation. The news is that this Jesus thing seems to be pretty important in the scope of cosmic history. That this is a decisive turning point in salvation history. That for all, Jew and Gentile, but in, in, in a lot of ways, especially for Jew, Jesus being Messiah is not irrelevant. You never have Paul or any of the other New Testament authors, for that matter, saying to people, Jesus is Lord and Messiah, but you know, if you're Jewish, that's okay, don't worry about it. You're good. 
There's no difference. No difference at all. Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin. And how God deals with that is... Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, you, we know, because you've told us and you've demonstrated it in our lives and in the lives of people we know and in the history of your dealing with your people. We know that you are loving. We know that you are just. We know that you are righteous. We know that you are faithful to your promises, that you come through on them often in ways we don't expect, we don't understand right away. But we agree here both that we are in trouble, that we have a problem, and we agree with gratitude that in Jesus you have solved our problem. That in your wisdom, according to the working out of your glorious purposes, And you gave him as a sacrifice that atones for our sin. We thank you for this gift that you have given to us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you'll indulge me for a quick second. The last song that we're going to sing, I've been really um, interested